the world of geopolitical strategy, the number of so-called experts or analysts is too innumerable to count. But in the rarefied world of actual foreign policy, decision-making, and influence, the list drastically shortens to only a few names. Although not as famous as rival Henry Kissinger, Zbigniew Brzezinski's term as counselor to Lyndon Johnson and national security advisor to Jimmy Carter marked him as a significant influencer during the Cold War era focused on extending America's superpower status via realist and globalist politics. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been Hello, welcome to the show. Today uh, I'm joined by Adam, Hank, and Hans. How are you boys doing? Good. Lockdown hard. I'm bored. I've run out of things to watch on Netflix. Content is gone. <laughs> we gotta yeah. make our own now. Yeah. It's a beautiful day. Just go outside. Actually, today was today was a was a beautiful day. I stepped out of my apartment. And I was like, "Wow, sun's shining. It's not too cold. It's not too hot. It's like perfect." And I walked around for like five minutes and immediately went back inside to work from home for eight hours. <laughs> well, it's the grass is always greener. You got it. You got to change it up a little bit. I mean, the lack of traffic, though, if you do want to take a, a little jaunt to the country, is, is quite pleasant because there's really very little cars on the road. So what are we talking about today, gentlemen? I think Nick had a topic for us to dive into. Uh, yeah, I did have a topic. I had Hank inform me that we were to give a shout out to a, uh, a Roo who donated to the program. We thank you, man. Thank you. I'm sure we can, we can get some crunch wraps or something, you know, to keep this thing going. As for the topic, I wanted to talk about, you know, <laughs> in revisiting some of my material, I actually only recently discovered that uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, lifelong shill for the international oligarchy, died a few years ago. <laughs> I did not know that. I thought he was still alive. <laughs> well, it's, it's easy to mix him up with Kissinger, right? Kissinger yeah. is still alive somehow. He's drained the life force from like every dead communist dictator and uh, kept himself alive longer and, than naturally possible. The Zig Bigger is, well. uh, is a, a cannot hold a candle to my man, Dr. Professor Mr. H.K., We'll just get that straightened out as uh, as we iterate here. But uh, his uh, his thinking pales in comparison, and his vice has not been uh, as good. Well, if I could add some statistical proof to that, according to the um, 
international and I'll put a link to this, but like international study for global politics, I think is roughly what the acronym is. It's from a guy in the Netherlands. He compiles lists of all these sort of new world order types who have uh, boards on the Bilderbergs and uh, trilateral commission, things like that. Uh, Henry Kissinger has by far the most memberships in of anybody throughout the world uh, tallied at 114 memberships. Uh, Brzezinski though, who was uh, fourth on that list actually had 64 above him was George P. Schultz at 77 and R. James Woolsey at 89. Hmm. They're all kind of big deals. They're like the old great eminences that regardless of political party, you're sort of obliged to solicit their opinion on things of a things of an international nature, even if you, you know, disregard uh, every single one of their recommendations, you still got to listen to him talk for a little bit. Well, his daughter's still talking. She's on um, Morning Joe or with the guy from Morning Joe. I can't remember what their show called. She's banging the guy from Morning Joe. I thought right? she married him. Oh, she married him. Wow. Yeah. Real soap opera. Uh-huh. What's their show called? Mika. Morning Mika Brzezinski. Morning, is Isn't it Morning, morning, morning Joe? Joe? Oh, okay. Yeah, Morning Joe. Wouldn't it be Morning with <laughs> Mika and Joe now? I feel like she would have gotten that by now. No, that's like, that's the pillow talk quotation. <laughs> <laughs> good morning joe anyway she's there uh it's 4 a.m time for your recording i mean would she, would she have gotten that job without her relationship to her father you guys think absolutely no it's always this like this fucking second generation thank god like there's no like miniature kissinger running around incompetently sullying the family line really like kissinger kissinger handled the whole legacy it's like my work speaks for itself. It's a good way to be. There, Not there like, is here's a my shithead daughter. No, I think his son is in Hollywood. And then uh, Soros has a son, too, who's uh, trying to pick up the reins. But, you know, who knows? Yeah, yeah I, just, I, I think that they Jr. have three children. Like open his mouth, though. Who, who has three? Uh, Rosinski, I think he had three. Okay. Uh, he has one who ended up working for the Clinton administration. Um and uh, another, I think, is a lawyer. Or both. <laughs> I don't think it's especially important. I mean, it is pretty funny, though, to see the contrast between father and daughter. He was always, I mean, we'll get into his, his life's work. But I will say that as far as liberal authoritarians go, people of that, I guess, realist school tend to be more agreeable to listen to talk because they don't really make a lot of effort to coat their euphemisms like, you know, international community or uh, uh, what, what do they say now instead of uh, American hegemony? It's like uh, the international order. Our, yeah. our, our partners. Our partners. Like, this kind of stuff. Ah, yes, our partners. They, they, our partners in Europe. I, they I like the steering load of masks from our, uh, our partners in Europe. The, the euphemisms like that that they use, they don't really put any effort into covering them with moral platitudes, uh, which is always interesting when I, I sent you guys a link earlier of uh, when him and the odious Jew Bernstein were on, I think it was Mika's show. 
uh, and he was whining about, you know, how Assad, you know, gassing children or whatever. And Brzezinski's basically like, well, what of it? I mean, what are you going to do about it? You're just going to whine more. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're of course in the, in the same consensus and they, they serve the same oligarchical interests, but there is something, I guess, a little bit refreshing about that as opposed to having to listen to the Bernstein types. Well, honestly, I don't know if this is too early to bring this up, but his, in, in terms of like the substantive policies that he advocated, which is kind of distinct from, uh, the social circles that he traveled in and what those social circles uh, advanced. But if you look at um, his actual policies with a few very notable exceptions, um, they're, they're basically paleocon uh, at least, you know, by comparison, like, yeah, to add a few points to that uh, in his later years, I mean, he kind of lost a lot of his purpose with the fall of the USSR. I mean, he was a dedicated, Cold uh, cold warrior and it's partly probably the reason somebody like that a, a, a Polak in particular would be or, or you know rise to this sort of position is probably a good part of ethnic animus I think motivates him the same you have a Jew and a Polak who are performing very similar roles and they're both motivated by their own ethnic animus towards Russia he managed to maintain a lot of the Cold War line after the fall of the USSR but to his credit, there are a few points as to what Hank was saying that should be addressed. Namely, when it came to the uh, Zionist state and this conflict with occupied Palestine, uh, he said, for example, this conflict poisons the atmosphere of the Middle East, contributes to Muslim extremism, and is directly damaging to American interests. Uh, so he wow. was a bit nuanced on the issue. Uh, he, of course, opposed the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And he took the position, and with respect to what I mentioned earlier regarding Syria and other uh, U.S. imperial meddling on behalf of the Zionist state, uh, he took the position uh, regarding the war, so-called war on terrorism, that Islamic terrorism was not a central strategic issue for yeah. U.S. power. It was really funny uh, when when people asked him, like, do you regret uh, when you were Jimmy Carter's national security advisor? Uh, arming all these uh, these guys that uh, 20 years later blew up the World Trade Center, supposedly. And he was like, yeah, you know, a bunch of angry Arabs, yeah, whatever. Uh, what's really important is the fact that uh, the central world island is now free from <laughs> Soviet domination. Yeah, his whole Eurasianism is very interesting. Uh, that's what his well, book it's, focuses it's on. It's fun. It's a fun, like, throwback. It's, it's like, it yeah, is a so throwback all because... world power emanates from Siberia. Well, yeah, it's it is it is what it's he who controls uh, it's he who controls the heartland uh, controls the world island and who controls the world island controls the world. So it's very control dumb. of Eastern. I Europe. feel like he's playing well, Risk in his it, mind, but it, this is it not was realistic. A, it was, we're talking that about McKinder. Every realist thinker does that. And McKinder's ideas had, I think, a lot more relevance uh, in the heyday of the British Empire, or actually, in the, I mean, this is the time of the waning of the British Empire, but these are when questions of land and sea power were much more central, and yeah. I think that they were able to hang on to these frameworks because they continued to serve the changing interests of the Anglo-Zionist elite. Uh, it seems <laughs> Russia has remained interestingly enough throughout the 20th century is still the primary 
a geopolitical rival of the of the Western power elite, regardless of everything that has transpired there. But we should maybe start a little ways back, I guess, uh, note that a few of the things that he's famous for in his early career was, of course, the uh, he founded the Trilateral Commission with um, his butt buddy, David Rockefeller. Yeah, and actually, was there. I, have a, I have an interesting quote on that. Just to give you some names of, of players who were involved in that. Um, so the eight Americans, this is from Zbigniew Brzezinski, America's grand strategist. Um, the eight Americans present at Pocatinko Hills, Fred Bergston, Robert Bowie, Zbigniew Brzezinski, McGeorge Bundy, George Franklin, Bayless Manning, Henry Owen, and of course David Rockefeller finally brought together five Europeans, Carl Garstens, Guido Colonna de Pagliano, Francois Duchesne, René Roche, and Max Konstam, and four Japanese, Kichi Miyazawa, Kinhiri Mukokoji, Saburo Okita, along with Tadishi Yamamoto as an observer. In their discussions, they insisted on the necessity of making concrete recommendations and on watching to make sure these were acted on by the governments of the three regions or by international organizations. They also debated the appropriateness of integrating representatives of communist or developing countries. The idea was rejected, except for the possibility of accepting observers or Canada. The idea was adopted, and they decided on the themes of the first working groups, the new economic system and the implications of change in political values. Finally, they de defined the structure of the organization. There were to be 31 members, 14 Europeans distributed according to the quota system of the European community, 10 North Americans, 2 Canadians, and 7 Japanese. A president, David Rockefeller provisionally, two regional co-presidents, and an executive director, Brzezinski. As for the financing, it was supposed to come from the three regions in equal amounts, but everyone knew that the Americans, in particular David Rockefeller and McGeorge Bundy, would supply what was needed at the outset. The Europeans and Japanese wondered whether they were going to be, in some sense, employed by Rockefeller. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> okay, so for people who don't know, uh, this is not going to be a show on the Trilateral Commission. And I'm not sure if a show on the Trilateral Commission would ever happen because I'm not sure it's quite interesting enough on its own. Though it was a hobby horse of uh, the American right-wing sort of conspiracy scene for, well, since the 1970s. Um, more on that later. But the short end of it, the Trilateral Commission was something created by the American oligarchy to consolidate and create uniformity in its two primary occupation zones uh, in Asia and Japan and in Western Europe after the victory of the forces of capitalism in 1945. So it was sort of one of the early uh, globalist organizations, I guess you would say. And it was also there that uh, they grew, they, they planted the seeds in a peanut farm where they grew a golem of their own uh, named Jimmy Carter, who would later go on to be president. And Brzezinski would, of course, serve as national security advisor to Carter and oversee such great things like the Iranian Revolution uh, and, as was mentioned earlier, the arming of Afghan rebels. Well, there's a, there was an interesting article to that effect written in 1977. I actually found it researching for this, written by Christopher Lydon. And... Um, the, it was it was titled, Jimmy Carter Revealed the Rockefeller Republican. 
and it, it goes into it's sort of tongue in cheek, but it, it sort of tries to critically look at many of the um, conspiracy theories that in some cases turn out to be very true later on. But uh, the theories that were popular, as you said, with the emerging paleocon right starting in the 70s, namely that Jimmy Carter was created because Nelson Rockefeller was pissed off with the Republican Party for dumping him in favor of, uh, of Bob Dole and uh, and other people. Yeah, that's correct. And that and that Jabignu basically trained Jimmy Carter in politics because Jimmy Carter had little to no real expertise or even understanding of the global political order or how to manage it or how to engage with it. And that uh, Jabignu was such an important piece of Carter's uh, national security team. Uh, throughout his administration because Big New basically taught him everything he knew before he even got into office. Yeah, which is why that Cyrus Vance was put out and uh, Brzezinski stayed in, despite Vance having a more measured attitude towards the Iran situation. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just Cyrus Vance. Like, there were all these guys who um, kind of surrounded Carter or associated at least with Rockefeller and Brzezinski who were part of what you could call like the, the, the establishment or the deep state at the time. People like Richard Holbrook, um, Warren Christopher, Cyrus Vance, which you mentioned, um, uh, Sam Huntington, who of course wrote the clash of civilizations, um, Walter Mondale, all these guys were basically surrounding Carter and then surrounding the sphere around Carter and trying to craft this like um, very 1970s, very bizarre global policy where the United States really wanted to believe in the notion that the Soviet Union was this uh, encapsulating global power that was continually on the rise and was going to at one point just subsume them and that America needed to change its its approach to the world order and ingratiate partners, as they were called, into this empire management. That the, the that the former the states that were basically rebuilt in the Marshall Plan were going to have to be ingratiated into the new system and made equal partners with it. Yeah, and I think it's something to be said about these types of organizations uh, going forward is what they, they allowed for, and this is something that the American right was picking up on at the time, and, you know, fast forward, you know, 20, 30 years, and then you get Alex Jones taking his shirt off and screaming about the globalists, uh, and he's not wrong. The purpose of them were largely, because you'll have these sort of uh, the Luke Radowski types will, you know, confront them and be like, oh, you guys are meeting in secret. Uh, this is against democracy, man. And Brzezinski is basically like, well, yes, this is how power operates. Well, yes, it's how power operates. What it allows is for these oligarchs to have direct lines of communication and be able to negotiate outside the formal structures of the state. So in the case of something like, for example, China, you always have the ability to get a Kissinger on the phone or really get Kissinger on the phone uh, if Trump causes too much problems. How, how does one find oneself in these circles if not because of your vast amount of money like Rockefeller? How does a guy like Brzezinski, I mean, Kissinger is somewhat of a well-trodden uh, story about his rise to power, but how did uh, Brzezinski find himself in these corridors of 
politicians he, and such. Well, I think he got a job working for Rockefeller. He he was kind of like Kissinger in that he got his start being a Rockefeller man. And Kissinger actually went out on his own and eventually became very accomplished in spite of the Rockefeller organizations. Brzezinski, the reason why he became a relic after the Cold War and well into the 90s, and no one really cared what he had to say anymore, is that it coincided with the general demise of the Rockefellers and their ability to influence politics. Like, you know, basically the 90s just sort of coincidentally was when the Rockefellers became irrelevant and there were new players on the block. So Brzezinski, you know, never actually did anything substantive on his own. He was always sort of working in the same circles, working for the Rockefeller Foundation, working for various front groups. And, you know, well into the early 2000s, like, I have a, a speech here he gave at this uh, Warsaw uh, plenary meeting in 2004. He's basically just saying the same thing over and over again. Like, he, he's just sort of playing the same tune as though he was still living in the 1970s because they hadn't really evolved to suit a new purpose. He was like, uh, he, he's sort of, um, I would describe him as basically a hatchet man that became kind of a pseudo celebrity. But he, again, kind of a pale imitation of Kissinger, who was a celebrity in his own right and kind of an interesting guy. Brzezinski just served like oligarch power, very, very bluntly. And he, the creation of Zbigniew Brzezinski as being this like strategic thinker, I think was totally like, uh, you know, I would classify it as a psyop. Like, you know, there's very little that you could actually say is unique to Brzezinski's thinking that would make him an interesting guy to look at. And he doesn't have a particularly interesting backstory. It's just well, it provides his work, his work provides convenient justifications for, for example, uh, looting Yugoslavia in the right. 90s. Right. Like Kissinger is was actually had like a PhD. Like you know, say whatever you want about Henry Kissinger. I like okay, I get it, guys. Like he's he's an evil Jew. Fine, but on in it, let's let's. He's one of the back. good ones. And, and let's look at Kissinger. Oh my God, so, Hank! Yeah, this guy got a PhD all in his own. Teaser for the Kissinger show. He he actually did an incredible amount of investigative and historical anthro uh, and anthropological work to develop theories on the nature of diplomacy like he did primary source research yeah he has a book so, called diplomacy i mean not just that book but all the theses he wrote in college his, all, yeah, his all uh, these, college thesis uh leaked yeah. a few years ago and you can actually read it up it's it's pretty graphomania like the dude the dude is clearly very impressed by his own intellect at the age of, you know, like 22 <laughs> or whatever he was. Um, but, you know, there's worse failings in the world. At least at least he actually did real research and tried to craft an interesting theory on diplomacy. Brzezinski literally just wrote textbooks for, like, neoliberal agents to go into a country and say – you need a fang parade and free markets in order to ingratiate and, Like yourself. none of this shit is very hard. When yeah. like the the stereotype of okay, like anybody who's a quote unquote realist thinker, it's like you can just see them like plotting out like ah uh, yes, you know 
if I seize the uh, the strategic salt uh, resource in this province, I'll I'll be able to give my armies a plus five uh, endurance <laughs> bonus when they take over the jungle mines of Cambodia. Like, and it's it's a stereotype because it actually is true. Like, it's not hard. There's there's only a few huge players in the world, and like the difficult questions are difficult because you can reasonably come down on either side of them. So it's like you've got the US, Europe, Russia, China, and other. And like you can basically just pick your coalition from there because there's really only a few plausible coalitions to shoot for. And like, you can put on your realist thinker cap and say, like, ah, oh, well, clearly the United States and China should divide up the rest of the world between them. Ah, oh, clearly the United States should ally with Russia and try to encircle the rising power China. Like, clearly the United States should exploit its legacy relationships with Europe in order to ensure world hegemony and keep down all possible opposing powers. Like, well, to that, you can like make a case for all of this shit. And all it is, is a social game of, okay, well, who projects more gravitas, who can assemble a more powerful domestic coalition that gets payoffs on the back end from whatever you propose as being theoretically in all caps, the national interest but it's all um, very sort of uh, uninteresting unless you're actually uh, looking at rationales for something and using it as a way to uh, construct specific policy. So it's interesting when somebody like Mearsheimer and Walt do the groundwork to actually say these are the specific ways that or I mean, really even characterizing it. Like, this is the actual relationship the U.S. has with Israel. These are the ways that it hurts us. We should do something different. But most of the whole grand strategy stuff is just, it's intellectual masturbation. You're right. going to do it, and it's a fun time, but it doesn't really get you anywhere. Well, well, it's basically the equivalent. I mean, it's the way that these types of power elite lackeys uh, they entertain themselves, whereas you know maybe kids or so, you know, young men in their in their twenties and early thirties, they'll play paradox games. Yeah. So let me read you another quote to kind of bolster what Hank is saying. That this is really just a social game. Um, the commission, and really, when this book says the commission, because it's a book about Jabigny Brzezinski, like it's it's Jabigny who's doing this. The commission thus went to work in four directions at once. Toward Europe, it aimed to create a less paternalistic and, quote, more equal approach than the post-Cold War network of transatlantic relations had achieved. The Bilderberg Group, the Atlantic Council, the Salzburg Seminars, the Aspen Institute, and so on. At the time, the commission would engage and encourage Europeans to reject the de Gaulle-style nationalisms to become unified and to open up more to the rest of the world, beginning with Japan, and to the global problems for which America needed equal partners. In the same spirit, the Trilateral Commission sought to also socialize Japan into the world of the great powers, while escaping the bilateral head-to-head encounters, which only amplified commercial and political frictions. 
Japan constituted the Trilateral Commission's most important, quote, mission, as Brzezinski suggested in Between Two Ages. He confirmed this in an internal memorandum about the commission's real targets, as seen by Gerard Smith in April 1973. Three of the seven announced objectives concerned Japan alone, encouraging Tokyo to play a more active role in the world. And then it goes on to say... Um, the commission also sought, and again, Brzezinski, also sought to influence American foreign policy more broadly. The elite needed to be encouraged to turn away from unilateralism of the right, the quote Nixon-Kissinger version, and from the isolationist temptation of the left, as rejected in the failed Mansfield Amendment mandating that U.S. military presence in Europe be kept by half, in favor of a more responsible approach to global problems. The trilateral's last implicit goal, or more, more precisely the background for that goal, remained America's rivalry with the USSR. So you can see here that the like the creation of the myth of the USSR, like that was we you know, by the time the 80s rolls around, we have Donnie Rumsfeld playing like, you know, doing that whole plan B commission and all that nonsense where they're like out there saying that the Soviet Union literally has like missiles that can wrap around the earth two times and all this crazy nonsense. Um, the, the myth of the USSR was already well underway. Like the USSR, from what we know from more honest histories, you know, and as time goes on, they get more honest, was a complete mess by 1970. It was a complete mess. It had zero force projection. It was a total social collapse society with like no hope. But the creation of the USSR as this, you know, global superpower was entirely done by the United States to serve a greater interest, which was the expansion of the world into like one big market. That was what bringing Japan into the fold was all about. That was what opening Europe was all about. You know, it was really about creating a global market. The USSR was a convenient backdrop to the main goals, which was the dissolution of borders and all and all that sort of thing and the, the, whole, the whole theory of the grand chessboard was also just sort of a way of inculcating all of russia's neighbors into this global market to then try and crush the russians and let me very, just say that the chessboard as a metaphor for united states policy making is so incredibly wild when you look at even the context of like the administration that he was a part of like the the idea that the US foreign policy establishment has the ability to make a plan have that be a good plan and stick to that plan for a decade at a time is just facially absurd and, and in the 1970s, Brzezinski um, and Rockefeller were going around uh, and trying to, I don't know, like in the early days of the Trilateral Commission, they were basically trying to get all of these U.S. policymakers who had some kind of background or interest in foreign policy to help create this social network, as it were. And so they approached people like um, Senator Mike Mansfield, William Fulbright, Charles Percy, 
um, Doug Dillon, Robert McNamara, who was by that point like a complete failure, um, and of course Spiro Agnew, which was Nixon's vice president. Now, it has been speculated before this is one of the many reasons why Nixon fucking hated Agnew towards the end of his uh, tenure as president and um, basically never spoke to him again for like decades because he saw Agnew as um, being sort of conniving and interested in various social cliques and other things that were not really of importance to the Nixon administration. Um, you can also see here that basically Brzezinski is going around and trying to create, while Nixon is basically you know leaving office and Kissinger is still around trying to pick up the pieces, uh, Brzezinski is trying to undo all of the work that Nixon and Kissinger did. And you can see Brzezinski not only as like a pale imitation of um, Kissinger, but moreover, um, the anti-Kissinger. He basically saw everything that Kissinger wanted in American foreign policy as being wrong and that it needed to be undone very swiftly. And the best way to do it was to create a network of prominent elites within Japan and across Asia, within Europe and within North America broadly to create the myth of the Soviet Union and then expand the global market to as much of the world as they could. Why do you say you wanted to undo everything Kissinger tried? Could you be specific about that? So in one specific example, um, Brzezinski basically looked at some of the trade tariffs that Nixon and Kissinger put in place and uh, during the Carter administration tried to have them removed. I don't think that he was successful. In another instance, um, Brzezinski repeatedly tried to derail these sort of post-detente that um, Nixon had approached with the Chinese. Nixon had gone to the Chinese, as we all know, and basically said, if the Soviets get out of hand, we need a way to crush them. And then, you know, Kissinger went to the Soviets and said, if the, uh, the Yellow Menace gets out of hand, we need to crush them. Brzezinski worked to undo this as much as he could. He frequently tried to destable, um, or destabilize American back channels with the Soviet Union and with China for, I mean, I think Nick speculated earlier it could have been ethnic animus. There's certainly a fair degree of ethnic animus in Brzezinski towards Russians that I think is um, pretty evident later on after the Cold War ends, and he's still singing this tune of Russia has to die. But there were a lot of other minor level instances where Brzezinski was trying to unravel the world that Nixon and Kissinger had created where America was this um, sort of manufacturing superpower that had a lot of good internal, was you know going in the right direction of having good internal environmental and labor regulations, and was trying to approach a a good balance in both maintaining a global market, but also ensuring interests at home were served first. Um, that America didn't really care about, uh, you know, Nixon really did not give a shit about um, global partners or whatever. Like Nixon didn't go into anything and think I need a coalition to do this. Like the the Bush, starting with the Clinton administration, the the whole notion of we need a coalition to do X, that was a very um, Brzezinski way of thinking. That was sort of his lasting uh, uh, impression on U.S. politics was 
America needs to sort of, you know, seek the approval of others to do what America could easily do on its own anyways. It was sort of this wraparound game of, you know, social clicking that was pointless. Um, but basically, Brzezinski was trying to create this world in which, you know, uh, especially what Kissinger wanted was the United States was a unilateral power that did whatever it wanted, whenever it wanted. It didn't need to listen to anyone. And uh, Brzezinski felt that that was incorrect. And the United States should be co-equal with a lot of countries that are smaller than the state of Connecticut. What, like what? what? What country? Like multiple European countries. I mean, the, the okay. whole notion of, of inculcating these like failed states in Europe, even like, and I say failed states, like Western Europe, failed states that were basically resurrected by the United States into a co-equal partnership was totally ridiculous. And Nixon in particular really did not like the Europeans and, you know, it was always sort of um, anti-trade deal with the Europeans, didn't really want to work with them, had repeatedly tried to muscle them out of their attempts at having a bigger role in what NATO would do in a, you know, in a, like a military response. Like the idea that uh, the United States needs to listen to the Netherlands as some kind of co-equal representative is totally asinine. Well, but that's, yeah, well, that's mean, sort of what Brzezinski wanted. Kissinger and Nixon basically saw them as irrelevancies. Like it wasn't some uh, kind of uh, neocon uh uh, conception of the United States as no, no, the world's it's, preeminent it's the hyperpower. Anti- it's just yeah. like they like if the Dutch aren't going to help us with Nam, and they're not going to do anything to get Nixon reelected, and like like what are you good for? <laughs> like actually, no, you cannot have your your uh, your American dollars back and the uh, the gold that was promised to you. Uh, you can go fuck off because. We're going to juice the economy nice and uh, nice and spiffily uh, heading into the midterms there. Yeah. Uh, my you know, my reading... Enough, someone mentioned... Oh, I just, as a funny aside, uh, someone mentioned diplomacy earlier. I just wanted to point out that book is like nearly a thousand pages long. Yeah. Uh, no, it's ridiculous. It, it does not once mention Brzezinski. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't I don't really know. I've never bothered to look up like what Kissinger thinks of Brzezinski. He, probably he didn't put it into writing. He, yeah, he probably just thought of it like some like dumb Polak that worked for his old boss. Like, oh yeah, that guy. They were definitely rivals, uh, and obviously Kissinger is the more famous of the two. Adam, you had something you'd like to say? Yes, thank you. Um, so I read the book, and it's not very long or very difficult to read, to be honest. It's basically just uh, the title's The Grand Chessboard. That's, I think, his most famous work. I, I, don't, uh, I don't have any knowledge of his other works, papers, and I've, I think I've only seen one interview of the guy. But... Um, Oh, and and that video where he stands on the top of, I don't know, a tank or something and says, you, you know, you, you, you never are with saw God where, or something to the Afghans. What would you say? You never saw where We Are Change asked that We Are Change like confronts him about Bilderberg. No. And his, response, his response is something like, uh, we sit around and conspire of how to suck the blood from the poor and exploit the world. Well, that's pretty funny. He's I mean, a funny, it's a funny guy because to, 
like that, that that dynamic I always found fascinating where to them it's like this big gotcha. It's like, oh, you're yeah. you went to Bilderberg meetings and you're a member of the CFR and you founded the Trilateral Commission. What do you have to say for yourself? And he's basically like, Well, I'm pretty proud of my work. <laughs> I mean, I think he was trolling too, but but no, that, I like that's uh, Nixon's sort of... uh, description of Bilderberg as the faggiest goddamn thing you've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. that that was the Bohemian, that was Bohemian oh. Grove, but yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, it's funny because it's just it's interesting because they're well, like we are changed. I don't know what they're up to these days, but the, what they represent is this very idealistic, bleeding heart liberal, you know, democracy lovers club or whatever, and democracy their objection now. is like. Yeah, um, I wouldn't be surprised if they, like Democracy Now!, had some uh, company funding, if you know what I mean. But uh, maybe not. I mean, they were in a very polished organization. That being said, uh, it is is funny to see the realist liberal authoritarian encounter the bleeding heart liberal. Yeah, so uh, so my, my reading is limited to his book, The Grand Chessboard. It came out in 1998. And it kind of reads just like, a, I don't know, like a, a really long college paper that is just a bunch of essays stapled together. And it kind of goes in just this round robin of the countries that he finds relevant. Uh, and it completely skips the Middle East, which I was expecting to happen at some point. But interestingly enough, he completely ignores it. Uh, doesn't, t- I mean, ignores Africa, ignores South America. Uh, ignores Australia, and it's all about the geopolitical strategies of America, Europe, and within Europe, he basically focuses on the UK, Germany, and France, and Poland, because he's Polish, Uh, and then Russia is sort of its own thing, and then the Far East, I think he mentions India a couple times, but really it's the focus of the Eurasian stuff that is Russia, China, Japan, Korea, uh, America's relationship with each of those and how to extend the superpower status of America, given that the GDP share has effectively shrunk vis-a-vis East Asia. That seems to be where I, his main focus is, I, is like it, going forward. That's, that's a big thing. I, I don't have an exact source on this, but I believe his position on India uh, was that it would actually not be able to last as a multi-ethnic state and that it was really just a relic of uh, the Cold War, mm. <laughs> which is an interesting position. Well, uh, I, but, but I think that like the average person on the alt-right could give you the same like political diagnosis of India. I mean, India literally has that citizenship law going into effect soon, and it's on the verge. I mean, if there wasn't a coronavirus epidemic, I think that there was a, a real risk of like a low-level civil war in India due to the fracturing of the Indians, I don't know, like fake ideology, which used to be like this post-colonial ideology. And now that India literally makes more money in a year than all of Britain does, I think that now like the uh, the old-school Hindu regime is trying to resuscitate itself and kick all the Muslims out. I mean, he, he is right. Okay, uh, India and Pakistan are a creation of the Cold War. Like, yeah, but anyone from the Cold War period could have told you that because they created them. Yeah, it, it, it's not really like a, a prescient observation, I think. He, his focus there, as Adam is saying, I mean, it was really 
after the fall of the USSR, the question was, well, how do we go into these former so- Soviet territories and democracy them? You know, you got to democracy. You got to. That's like a really horrible verb. We got to democracy them. Well, I, I, I want to ask horrible. you guys how you got that impression because I I didn't get that impression. It was just. To me, it was kind of like what Hank was saying. It's like, well, this country has uh, X natural resource. This country has Y pipeline. This is how they're going to become important. Uh, I didn't get this idealistic, uh, or it, maybe you don't even think of it as idealistic from his point of view, but I don't remember no, I don't. him using yeah. democracy as some cudgel. He did sort of pay lip no, service to America's soft power. Use, power. Yeah, but, he doesn't do it in his book. I'm using okay. it as a euphemism. Okay. You know. For, con- for domination and control of the oligarchy. You'll, you'll see in interviews he does uh, on a more, you know, on like an MSNBC type format, you'll see him pay service to the D word. Yeah. Uh, as to explain, for example, you know, where Hank was mentioning one of the big questions that faces uh, these pigs is the question of Russia or China. And that question has, of course, been settled already. The, the answer is China. Uh, China requires, you know, a little bit of... Uh, they may need to tinker around a little bit, but Russia is unacceptable. Like he's talked about, he was asked blatantly, like, well, do you see a possibility of Russia being then included into NATO or something like that? And his answer is basically like they need to have a come to democracy moment, which by which, of course, he means <laughs> they need they need regime change. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, China is, of course, already amenable to Rockefeller type interests. And as Han said earlier, Rockefeller isn't even necessarily the most important player anymore. But I just mean that as a stand in for uh, the Western oligarchies. I wouldn't count Rockefellers out at all, though. Uh, that being said, from this book, I want to maybe I'll throw what I think is interesting uh, two little paragraphs here and we can discuss. So here we go. <clears throat> in that context, for some time to come, For more than a generation, America's status as the world's premier power is unlikely to be contested by any single challenger. No nation state is likely to match America in the four key dimensions of power, military, economic, technological, and cultural, that cumulatively produce decisive global political clout. Short of a deliberate or unintentional American abdication, the only real alternative to American global leadership in the foreseeable future is international anarchy. And actually, I want to stop right there for a moment. Uh, you know what's interesting when he says this, when he talks about international anarchy, is he concedes earlier. I mean, one of his central points is that no, at no other time in history was there a was there a world premier power. Even yeah, and at the like height when of you the, say international anarchy, that's like the precept yeah, of realism. Yeah, yeah exactly. That like, exactly. well, that's what you got. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hold on, I'm not. I'm just retarded. Uh, I mean, it's 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 deeply contradictory on its on its face. It's it's a very strange thing, but I think that he wants to use. I, I think he's trying to deploy the word anarchy to imply some kind of extended chaos as opposed to the normal relationship between states, especially in the absence of a world unipolar hegemon. But that being said, I will continue with this, and we can do that again as it proceeds. In that respect, it is correct to assert that America has become, as President Clinton put it, the world's indispensable nation. Oh, God. It, it is important to stress here mm. that uh, both the fact that indispensability and the actuality of the potential for global anarchy, the disruptive consequences of population explosion, poverty-driven migration, remember this, radicalizing urbanization, 
ethnic and religious hostilities and the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction would become unmanageable if the existing and underlying nation-state-based framework of even rudimentary geopolitical stability were itself to fragment. Without sustained and directed American involvement, before long, the forces of global disorder could come to dominate the world scene. And the possibility of such fragmentation is inherent in the geopolitical tensions, not only of today's Eurasia, but of the world more generally. Mm. Uh, I'd like to point out the, the comment about uh, poverty-driven migration is very interesting. You know, these people were thinking about the consequences uh, a good 15 or so years in advance, and it addresses the other problem that they have, which is, you know, what happens if America is no longer useful to Europe, and what ha would happen if, I mean, the, the thing that keeps these people up at night, I mean, I don't know how worried they are about it, but if it came to possess anything of a possibility, it would freak them out to a severe degree. And that would, of course, be an independent Europe making alliance with Russia. Yeah, well, I think I the notion to, uh, that uh, the world would basically fall on its face without American, quote unquote, leadership, I think is sort of silly. Now, it does make some sense that there would be an increase in tension, perhaps, because the absence of the largest superpower in the world would incentivize some of these smaller players to try to take a chunk of the uh, the world's uh, resources or territory or political influence. There's no doubt about that. But the, the notion that the border crisis would be worse without America is kind of, I mean, knowing what we know about how American culture promotes globalism, I don't think that's true. If you look at what Hungary and the sort of uh, Visegrad nations are trying today, they're kind of playing the Russian and Western, Eastern and, and Western influences off each other. And right it's now they're Turkey doing. Is doing no. I mean, well, Turkey's, is... I don't trust them, but they're um, they're dumping a lot of their migrants on Europe. But uh, and they may have a internal immigration issue as well. No, no, no. no. Uh, what, what I'm saying is that they're they are playing the Russians and the United States and the Chinese off against. Oh, each for other. sure. All, and Brzezinski points that out. Like they they have yeah. this nor north, uh, east, south thing that they have to deal with, or west, west, east, south. That's what he that's what he said. But um, and it makes sense. Look, given where they are. But um, yeah, I, I I think that America. At this point, it's it's not earning its role as world leader. So that's all I got to say. Well, I have uh, I have another choice quote. So this is from Brzezinski's um, the 2004 address to the Trilateral Commission in Warsaw um, that I mentioned earlier. Um, so this is you know to give you a frame of t reference. Guys, this is uh, right after the Iraq invasion, and this is really at the height of the neocon coup of America. Um, and this is what Brzezinski has to say about himself and his, uh, the, the future of the world in his mind. Last but far from least, the growing access not only by states but by terrorist or criminal organizations to weapons of mass destruction and the setting of percolating global turmoil and intense political resentments that cannot be understood merely by the repetitive invocation of the word terrorism poses the risk of the progressive degradation of global order, as well as of the growing vulnerability of democratic societies. The cumulative result could be an escalating global chaos. There's that international anarchy, global chaos, whatever, fueled by a new doctrine of divisive hatred 
filling the ideological gap created by the end of Marxism, focused specifically on America as the alleged source of most of the world's ills. Fusing anti-Americanism with anti-globalizationism is in finding its emotional arsenal and fundamentalist, religious, ethnic, and historic grievances. The new doctrine of hatred could ignite worldwide passions and fuel escalating violence. So then he, he kind of goes on and pats himself on the back sort of ridiculously. And then it goes to, uh, it is relevant to note from the American perspective that U.S. foreign policy over the several decades of the Cold War was remarkably consistent and, <laughs> and successful precisely because the American people would not endorse extremism, either of the right or of the left. Bipartisanship at home and respect for allies abroad worked well in the past, <laughs> and they are needed to cope with the future. It gets, oh, hold on, hold on, it gets more cringe. Today, we need a shared strategy for three grand tasks to promote the further expansion both of the EU and NATO. Why is it like an American policymaker talking about expanding the EU? But whatever. That's but been his position there for are a long strategic time. strategic partners, and, okay. Hans. Hold on, hold on. That means they going. do what we fucking tell them. It keeps going. To pacify the new, quote, global Balkans and to encourage a collective structure of security cooperation in Asia and notably in the Far East. On promoting the further expansion both of the EU and NATO, neither political geography nor geostrategy are static concepts. They evolve. Brilliant. <laughs> they evolve. Tell and us the more. Expansions of both organizations place now on the agenda the future status of Ukraine, of Turkey and of the newly independent states of the Caucasus. Their eventual association with the enlarging transatlantic community will then facilitate the constructive <laughs> engagement of Russia. So many fucking nouns oh, in on, this hold on, thing. Hold on. Will then facilitate the constructive engagement of Russia with its imperial option altogether then foreclosed. What, we need to, what he means need by constructive engagement is encirclement and shakedown. <laughs> So, so you okay? So now we have the picture here. Thirty, thirty years basically after Zbigniew and his money men at the Rockefeller Foundation start the Trilateral Commission with the creation of the myth of the USSR. Thirty years later, is the new creation of the new myth of the resurgent Russia. That really Russia is the ultimate problem, and Russia has always been the problem. So now. Yeah, we can see that, you know, the backdrop of the USSR or Russia or whatever as this um, threat that then justifies all of these things that Zbigniew wants in general, uh, mostly the expansion of the global market, yeah. is, is also motivated by something you can tell is very, very prolific throughout his writings. He has a deep, deep animosity for Russians as people. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the thing. You, you have... The, the thing about those myths is that they were true from a certain perspective. You know, they were, Russia was in 1973 and is in uh, 2003 and now to 2020, still an obstacle to the creation of the globalist project. It remains an obstacle. And Brzezinski is basically one of those guys that you pay to go give rationales for why you know, American military and political force must be deployed in the service of the international money elite. 
Yeah. Well, here, here's a here's another choice um, section from uh, uh, the Grand Strategist book about Japan. The Trilateral Commission gained a certain public notoriety in 1975 owing to controversy surrounding one of its reports, that of Sam Huntington and Michael Crozier, on the governability of democracies. As early as 1973, Huntington had suggested to Brzezinski that the Trilateral Commission should look into the transformations of domestic policy in the developed countries, and Brzezinski had indicated that he wanted to include this insofar as possible in the Commission's activities. No sooner said than done, and in June 1974, this was the working group that generated the most interest among members of the Commission. So much so that Brzezinski asked Huntington to come present the report that was being prepared to the executive committee in Washington in December. So basically, to, to summarize this, um, Brzezinski arrives at this conclusion based on the work that Huntington and others are doing. And again, you probably have heard of Samuel Huntington. He wrote The Clash of Civilizations, which is um, not a bad book but certainly kind of um, Well, I think it was kind of like a post-Cold War attempt yeah. to make the analogy of the former East-West divide now becoming a North-South divide. Yeah. Um, so anyways, Brzezinski then kind of tries to arrive at this synthesis, and he's going around trying to convince people. Um, and it basically he's saying, and you know, it, in the United States, the, for instance, the power of the president had diminished in favor of the Congress, the press, and the bureaucracy, institutions that could not supply substitute leadership. What was then required then in a way was less democracy, especially in the areas where it should not rule in universities, for example, a more concentration of power in the hands of governments, more restraint on the part of civil society and the demands it made of democracies. So you see, finally, the real synthesis here. When Nick was, you know, saying we're going to democracy you as sort of a verb, what this is really about is not actual like democratization. This is really, truly, about creating a government within your country that is part of this larger quote transatlantic community, and then taking steps to liberalize certain elements of the society, religious and social elements, market elements, so that they're more conducive to foreign investment and, and you know, foreign engagement. Yes. But but well, to, to, also, a- to also ensure that the establishment that is created by people like Brzezinski remains firmly in power. Basically, what Brzezinski wants to do to your country, or and what men like Brzezinski wanted to do and still want to do to your country is establish um, a competitive establishment or deep state, if you like, to then ensure that their interests, which appear contradictory at first, um, are made clear that, yes, you can have um, foreign investment in your markets, but you do not have the right to infringe upon egalitarianism and you can't say to like gays having a pride parade, you can't, I don't want you doing that. that that's not allowed. But you have to allow foreign investment. So this is really what, you know, the, the creation of the global order that Brzezinski was trying to do on behalf of the Rockefellers. This is what it was. Which will be the, 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 the kulaks of that order will be homo americanus. Right. 
I mean, to be a master democratist, a democratizer, uh, is like being a master chef. You know, you, you got to know how much democracy to put in there. You can't put a little too much democracy, you know. You got you to gotta get the democracy levels right. You know, you, you said something earlier, Hans, in the earlier quote that you read that I thought was interesting regarding the relationship between, what was it, um, uh, anti-Americanism and, uh, uh, what, what was the second part of that? Anti-globalism. Like, Anti-globalism, there we go. Okay, so that that I find interesting because, two, I will say one thing, I, I don't know if you would put this in, you know, chalk this up to hit the credit side of his account ledger, but I think that, when we talked earlier about his sort of paleocon light positions in the early 2000s, uh, particularly regarding the United States invasion of Iraq and his opposition to it, et cetera, I think he was well cognizant of the fact that because when the neocons got in, what you had were these, you know, these Zionist fanatics who were willing to jeopardize in some respects, who were willing to jeopardize the interests of other money elite uh, in the service of their their shitty little fucking desert state and the i i think that when you see him say anti-americanism and anti-globalism in the same sentence and you look at his other positions regarding the islamic world and islamic terrorism i think he's keenly aware that uh, too much aggression on behalf of the zionist entity will create and has created an anti-American and by proxy an anti-globalist backlash. And Correct. we see that in the rise of Islamic uh, in Islamic traditionalism or what have you. And I think that th- this is funny too when you when we bring it back to this the issue of when the American right or you know the American liberals, the traditional American liberals were calling out people like Brzezinski and they're like, oh the globalists are meddling with our sovereignty and blah blah blah. These people this has always been their error and why they're still wrong today and will remain wrong until uh, someone brings sense into them is that they, they seem to think of globalism as this force from without when in reality, as I hope our listeners are well aware, America has always been and is the force by which globalism enters the world. Well, what's funny is that, um, you know, like after Brzezinski, so this, this report that Huntington wrote, the governability of democracies. Um, when it came out, and as we were talking about earlier, you know, kind of congruence with the Christopher Leiden article in, in 1977, uh, the 70s was really when, um, particularly the right wing in America, like the, the last vestiges of the John Birch Society and the new organizations that were forming, some of which were like tied to Reagan. Um, these groups really like started to take a hard look at what the United States was becoming in the seventies. So when this report, when, when the knowledge of this report is made public, that there, that like the truck, that there's this creepy group of people talking about undoing democracy or whatever, this is, this is kind of what happens coming from a relatively secret group of private individuals connected with the business world. This report was understandably explosive Oil poured on the fires of conspiracy theorists both on the left and on the right. Far from rejecting the report, Brzezinski was delighted by the controversy it was generating and by the notoriety it was bestowing on the commission. So in other words, Brzezinski thought it was funny. He thought it was amazing that he was finally getting all the attention he ever wanted. And you can also, if you want to look at the man's psychology, finally someone's paying attention to him and not Henry Kissinger. (laughs) 
<laughs> Finally, he's getting his spot in the limelight as the most interesting man in foreign policy or whatever. Uh, for, for once, people actually want to hear what he has to say. And of course, what he's saying is absolutely batshit. And I think you're right that ultimately what Brzezinski was there to do was to expand the power of the Rockefeller organization and to expand um, certain um, oligarchic interests. And, you know, the, the meeting, as I mentioned all his names earlier, the meetings he was having with these sort of um, Japanese and European, as well as North American um, foreign policy advocates and industrialists and academics and sort of prominent political figures who were connected to wealthy families. Like, you know, he's going around, he's trying to attain a sort of global harmony, right? He wants a global harmony for good business because good business is great business for the Rockefeller organization and other interests. And you can see him opposing certain things like the 2003 invasion of Iraq as being bad for business. Um, the the fervor of the Bill Crystal crowd in uh, the run-up to Iraq in particular, I think was so bad for business. And I think you're right, it unleashed uh, a, an immense amount of anti-globalization efforts and immense, um, let's say, uh, anti-American efforts that the only way they could eventually try and reconcile with it was to appoint this sort of shadowy figure who uh, had a very strange past, not unlike Jimmy Carter and others, um, suddenly to the forefront of American politics to sort of patch up the relationship that America had with the world. And that was, of course, Barack Obama. Um, so, you know, you can see sort of the end of the Brzezinski effect on American policy and the Brzezinski legacy as being Barack Obama, who was basically the hatchet man that was created similar to Jimmy Carter from a political standpoint um, to patch up relationships across the world and to talk about globalization and to sign trade deals and to try and um, do peace negotiations and go on the global apology tour, all the things that the right accused him of. Um, you can really see Obama as basically trying to save the mission that Brzezinski had endeavored upon starting in the 70s, had come pretty close to fulfilling in the 90s with Clinton. Um, and of course, was totally undone by this brief interlude where we had like literal psychopaths from Israel and um, from the northeast of the United States, uh, basically trying to initiate like a, a global war on terrorism. You know that that was very bad for business, and that was bad for Brzezinski and his crowd, and bad for what we were talking about earlier regarding his. He preferred. The approach of you know operating under the aegis of you know, the international community rather than the right, exactly. Bush exactly. doctrine, unipolar, you know, bomb the shit out of a bunch of peasants uh, as America. I would add too that in his later years, again, I didn't know he was dead until today. But <laughs> in, in, in his later years, um, he became increasingly concerned with. Uh, what he his language uh, global political awakening, uh, which is again you know back to the same concept. I think he was also uh, becoming more interested in the ways in which technology might affect 
the world order, etc. cetera. Uh, there's an interesting bit with WikiLeaks, actually, where he discussed how WikiLeaks uh, could easily be publishing material that's being seeded by intelligence services, which is interesting. He's right. Uh, it's the point that I've made as well, and Adam has made as well. Uh, it is, of course, right. And I think he was a little bit uh, upset about, I think there was a time there in the uh, end of the Bush years and in the early Obama years where I think that people like Brzezinski had some concern about what all these wars were doing to the American left. I kind of, I think of Brzezinski kind of like that fat kid you'd play with. And you'd be playing a game and the fat kid would have a good run, you know, have a, have a, he'd win a round or something. And then he'd, he'd pick up his magic cards or whatever and be like, hey, I'm going home now. I won. And, you know, the point at which he do, does that is basically the world order after 1945. And these people, they spent their careers trying to maintain this world order. And then they tried to adapt their framework that they were using during this time, during the Cold War years, to what came afterwards in the fall of the USSR. And interestingly enough, it is more or less remains applicable. I mean, it, it is not exactly an outdated framework because Russia remains, as it was during the USSR, it remains the chief threat to the global international money power. I think with China, yes. Without China, yeah. no. But yes. Well, that's why that's why that's why uh, Kissinger in China was so important to the uh, to the elite. That was such a pivotal move because it allowed for Wall Street to build up China as a creature of its own making. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to Anthony Sutton, he basically says this is all planned. And on some weird level, it seems like that's possible with this coronavirus stuff, basically kind of like flipping the script as they seem to have wanted it to have happened in many of his other uh, theories uh but it, it's it's a it's a big uh it's a big sell because you're assuming that the world really is run by a very small group of people uh, th- there are some inconvenient relics for example brzezinski did flip out when trump accepted that phone call from taiwan uh, congratulating oh, him like Brzezinski was very upset about that. And Taiwan does represent uh, a little mm. bit of a problem relic. Yeah. You know, it was something that was created. It served its purpose when it was created, but the United States would love nothing more than to hand the Island back to the mainland. I don't know. Yeah, it's they, sort they just, of like South Korea in that it allows the United States to kind of, uh, have something to negotiate China with. It, it's like the, correct. South Korea yeah, allows the hand, soldiers. They wouldn't hand it back for free. Nick. If you're in the slocks, the slocks? The slocks. You got to preserve your slocks. What is a slock? Single line your of code. Your seat lines of communication oh. and control. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of You course. see, if you look at the shipping channels that surround the world island. <laughs> hey, let me draw you a map. <laughs> the Spratleys. They, 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 they Hans, Hans, give, they go Hans, the give me seven of different colors of marker. The <laughs> and they go through the Straits of Taiwan, and you can't go around it for no, no, various no arcane reasons so if you want to maintain your slocks in order to control the commercial exchange with the world island then it's important to maintain taiwan as an outpost of commercial interest this is Hans, this is the height that, of polish he needs like 20 different different colored markers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
The worst I mean, part think... about this is like when you read it, when you read his book or whatever in just regular print, it's not color coded and you get all these maps. And so they're all just like varying shades of black and you're trying to figure out like which shade belongs to which because, uh... you know, they couldn't print it in color. So it's like you got like five different shades of black and gray. That you're trying to trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Oh, my God. I, I think that uh didn't I make a comment in the cybernetics episode about Jabignu? Well, and... he had the book uh, Technotronic Era, which I haven't read. I just I know the title because it sounds so funny and so true. Yeah, I, I made a I made a crack about like this is the height of Polish intellectualism, but I mean it really is. It I I really don't understand what exactly was so interesting about this guy. Again, I'm yeah. convinced that his whole. Um, the, the whole notion of Zbigniew Brzezinski being like this important American foreign policy thinker um, was entirely the creation of, you know, like the money men, literally the Rockefellers uh, that, that funded him for several decades and preserved him for several decades and, you know, basically kept him going despite the fact that he, you know, for nearly 40 years over 40 years, basically said the same thing over and over again without, like, any sort of real constructive introspection. I think, honestly, um, the only reason we're doing a show on him is that he is an interesting figure in the sense that, um, he, you know, he was sort of this, uh, again, very important hatchet man for very rich and powerful people um, who was dispatched to like inflict massive amounts of pain on places that didn't necessarily want to go along with like the global business model. But I think that honestly, uh, there's probably been a thousand, two thousand, ten thousand people like Brzezinski who are going around writing white papers, writing books nobody reads. Um, Any random foreign policy grad student or professor or think tank apparatchik, like the like you you just pick one. Yeah, I mean, there's probably a thousand alone over in Georgetown. Like, I I really think that honestly, Zbigniew really only became prominent because he's a not really an American. He's sort of this like weird Slavic emigre. Um, B because he was a creation of the Rockefellers and C because he happened to write things that were useful to certain interests that were in power for a period of time. I think the best way to settle this, or at least to settle the old rivalry between the two men, between Kissinger and Brzezinski is what we're going to need is we're going to need the release of the Mika sex tapes and the photos of Kissinger bent over the armoire at one of those creepy Rothschild parties. I'm afraid of the world I'm afraid I can't help it 
Thank you. 